your Bibles to Ezra chapter 6, Ezra chapter 6. The title of the message tonight and also the subject of the message tonight is the temple is completed and dedicated. The temple completed and dedicated. Now we've talked before and you've probably heard it before that we talk a lot about the position and the condition of God's people. Now, these two things are quite different. Positionally, the Jews here were where God wanted them to be. They were in the land. King Cyrus gave the decree for the people to return to the land. And he recognized that he was doing God's work because, or or recognized that he was doing it uh, because God had commanded him to. He gave the okay to rebuild the temple, recognized it because God had commanded commanded him to. So these people are in the position that God wanted them to be in. But their condition, spiritually speaking, that was a whole different story. It wasn't that good. And that's because they were discouraged. You see, they would have just liked to walk away from the whole rebuilding project. Because there was so much hindrance and discouragement. So what does God do in this situation? He raised up prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, to encourage them. And it seems that God's people today have a tendency to get their position and their condition mixed up. Now, if you're in Christ today, you are in a good position. But how is your condition in Christ, spiritually speaking, your relationship? Are you discouraged This evening? Are you a discouraged Christian this evening? Are you anchored in Christ, but you still want to quit? You still want to give up? Do you want to just walk away from it all? Because you see, if that's how you feel, even though your position is good, your condition is not good. That was the condition that the Jews were in here in the book of Ezra. And the thing to see here is that God is with his people. And God's will is going to be done. We find now that that a discovery was made. And once it was made, notice what happened. Notice how it affected the people. Let's begin now in chapter 6 with verses 1 through 5. And it says, Then King Darius issued a decree, and a search was made in the archives, where the treasures were stored in Babylon. And at uh, uh, Achmetha, In the palace, that is in the province of Media, a scroll was found, and in it a record was written thus. In the first year of King Cyrus, King Cyrus issued a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem. Let the house be rebuilt, the place where they offered sacrifices, and let the foundations of it be firmly laid. Its height 60 cubits and its width 60 cubits with three rows of heavy stones and one row of new timber. Let the expenses be paid from the king's treasury. Also let the gold and silver articles of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took from the temple, which is in Jerusalem and brought to Babylon, be restored and taken back to the temple, which is in Jerusalem, each to its place and deposit them in the house of God. So we see in verses 1 through 5, they go back to the archives and they find the decree of Cyrus. In the letter from Tadanai to Darius, he suggested they should search the archives, which were literally the house of scrolls, 
to find out whether or not King Silas really did make a decree giving the people, the Jews, to, uh, the okay to go back to rebuild the temple at Jerusalem. So they did search the archives and they found the scroll. Now, there was no record in Babylon of King Cyrus's decree that the Jews were to rebuild their temple. But about 300 miles away in the archives or the house of scrolls, a scroll was found that had King Cyrus's decree in it. The enemy of your soul, the accuser of the brethren, he accuses you and he condemns you all day long, trying to stop you, trying to slow down the work that God is doing in you and through your life. But stored away in a faraway heavenly palace, there's a scroll, the Lamb's book of life. And if you're a believer, much to your amazement and much to the disappointment of the enemy, your name is there. And if your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, all the sins that you ever committed are erased by the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed on Calvary's cross. While your name is preserved eternally, written in the same blood like permanent ink that can't be erased. And based on the scroll that was found, King Cyrus decreed that the work should continue and God's enemies leave them alone. And in the same way, it was on the basis of God's word, the gospel, the good news that Jesus said, away with you, Satan. Now, how will you overcome the attacks and the accusations and the condemnation of Satan when he tries to stop from doing what you know you could and should be doing? Well, you say, it is written that the price has already been paid and I am forgiven. And you claim the command of the King of Kings, Jesus Christ, as recorded in the word of God. And you keep going with the work of God that he's called you to do. And the lesson here tonight in all of this is that we should trust the hand of God, the providence of God, which rules and overrules all rulers. Now, concerning the temple at Jerusalem, verse 3 tells us that the king said, let the house be rebuilt. So here's the decree that King Cyrus made to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem about 400 years before Jesus was born. The temple was to replace Solomon's temple that was destroyed 70 years earlier. Now let's look at the sacrifices and the foundations that are mentioned in the decree in verse 3. First, the sacrifices. Let's, let's look here at where those sacrifices were offered. Now this, refer, this refers mostly to the animal sacrifices that were made at the temple in the worship ceremonies by the Israelites. These sects. <clears throat> Excuse me. These sacrifices were a type of Christ and the cross, and they were made by the people. The sacrifice of the Savior and the sacrifice of the people must be a symbol in every house of God. Because if Christ is not offered or, or, or a symbol in the church, we have nothing to offer. We have nothing to give. At church, we must emphasize in our teaching and in our preaching as much as we can the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. Because if you leave Christ out and the cross and the blood, you don't have a gospel message. You don't have anything to give the people. And if the church is going to do well, the sacrifice of the saints has to be noticeable as well. In other words, what we claim in Christ needs to be seen in our life or we don't have a message 
And churches don't do enough because people aren't willing to sacrifice their time, their energy, energy or possessions to, to support the church, the work of Christ. Now the foundations. Verse 3 says, let the foundations of it be firmly laid. The temple was to be built on a strong foundation. And even though all of the dimensions weren't given here in verses 1 through 5, it's likely that the second temple was built on the same foundation stones that were still in place from the time of Solomon. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 11, Because of God's grace to me, I have laid the foundation like an expert builder. Now others are building on it. But whoever is building on this foundation must be very careful because no one can lay any foundation other than the one we already have, Jesus Christ. Paul was a master builder. Paul's main job as an apostle was to lay the foundation of the Christian gospel. Now, Paul didn't design the foundation. He only laid the foundation. The only foundation of biblical Christianity is Jesus Christ. The foundation is, is not about New Testament good moral principles. Many of those moral principles are found in many other religions. The foundation is not in the history or the tradition and decisions of churches and church leaders down through the centuries. It's Jesus Christ and Him alone. So in a sense, it's all of Scripture because all Scripture is both from and about Jesus Christ. The Old Testament prophesied, and prepared for his incarnation. The Gospels tell us about the history of his early ministry. In the book of Acts, they, it tells us about the history of the church in its early years, in its beginning. The epistles, <clears throat> their commentaries on his message and on his work. And the book of Revelation is the final testimony of his ruling and his soon coming return. Jesus said in John 5, 39, you search the scriptures. For in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. So again, in verse 3, it says, Let the foundations be firmly laid. This was a wise thing to command. If there's ever a place that we should build on a strong foundation, on strong foundations, it's in the spiritual area. At the best foundations, the best foundations that we can spiritually build on is the Word of God and the Son of God. Jesus said in Matthew seven twenty four through 25, Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. The Word of God and the Savior will never fail. A church has to be built on its foundation which is the Word of God and the Son of God. 1 Peter 1.23 says, The Word of God which lives and abides forever. Hebrews 13 says in Jesus, Who will never leave you nor forsake you. There's our foundation, the Word of God in Jesus Christ. The Scriptures and the Savior has to be the foundation of the doctrine of the church or its doctrine is worthless. We have to build our spiritual hopes and our desires on the same foundations, the Word of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Man's salvation has to be based on the foundations of the Word and the Savior because if you build, again, your eternal hopes on anything else, they will come tumbling down and you'll never know the joys of eternity in heaven. Let the foundations of it be firmly laid. This typified Christ 
Because He's the firm foundation that we build our spiritual life upon. It's upon Him that the framework of the church, His church, is to be built. In Psalm, 1, Psalm 11, 3, it says, If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Well, lay them again. Because Psalm 82, 5 says, All the foundations of the earth are unstable. Jesus Christ is the only solid, stable foundation that we have. And then again, in Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 27, Jesus described there two kinds of builders. One of the builders built his house on the rock. And another one built his house on the sand. And the saddest difference between the two builders is where they end up when it's all over. Jesus' sermon ends with a terrible warning about judgment. And his final words were about the man who built his house on the sand. And when the winds came and the storms blew, which represent the trials of life, he said, great was its fall. Because it was built on shaky ground, a shaky foundation. The bottom line of the gospel for those who reject Jesus Christ is not that they forfeit, forfeit a bunch of blessings or even that they forfeit a life of eternal pleasure with God in heaven, which is absolutely true. But for those who reject Jesus Christ, they're destined for everlasting torment in hell and destruction that keeps on destroying forever. Because to reject Jesus Christ is to look forward to being, as Jesus said, cast into hell where their worm never dies and the fire is not quenched. It's not a very bright outlook. The plans of God's enemies fail so greatly that not only was the building project allowed to continue, but I love how God works, but it was to be paid for by the Persians, by God's enemies. Because the word of God was followed, the enemies were beaten at their own game, God turned the tables on them. So how can we Turn the tables on our enemy, the accuser of the brethren. Satan himself, who stands before the Lord constantly, day and night, accusing us of how bad we are. Well, we turn the tables on him at the Lord's table when we come to the table of communion. You see, Jesus told us that we're to agree with our adversary quickly in Matthew 5, 25. Our adversary is the devil. And, and agreeing with him that I am a sinner at the table of the Lord simply causes me to praise the Lord with greater passion than I would otherwise. Because he who has forgiven much loves much. I mean, do you recognize how much you've been forgiven? Now, Jesus wasn't talking about the mount of sin. But of the awareness of the sin that dwells within us. As Paul said, oh, wretched man that I am. Wretched. The sin that Jesus would pay for on the cross. Satan accuses us all the time before God, nonstop. But because Satan is not omniscient, that is, he's not all-knowing, all he, has, he, he doesn't have any idea of half the sin in our life. But neither do they consider the infinite grace that God washes us clean with, white as snow, as Isaiah said. 
Don't defend yourself against your accuser. He's right. We are sinners and we're not worthy of anything that that we can do with God or for God. We don't deserve anything. But we come and we say, yeah, I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. And knowing that, we praise God all the more. Then regarding the vessels, it mentions in verse 5, it says they were vessels of precious metals. Now, those vessels were taken as figures of the servants of God. We're called vessels. God's servants are called vessels. These vessels of, of precious metals, they were taken as figures of the servants of God, just like we're vessels to be used by God. And it says that these vessels were of precious metals, gold and silver, showing the preciousness and the value of God's servants. Verse 5 says that the vessels were taken away by King Nebuchadnezzar. They were taken from the temple because of the people's sin. The removals of the vessels was then a sign to them of their apostasy. And you know what? That's exactly what Satan wants to do to us. He wants to take you away from the house of God and he wants and he uses whatever tactic will work. And they were taken to Babylon, verse 5 says. Babylon is a type of the world. And Satan has taken many of God's vessels out of the church. And he's taken them away. And he's taken them back into the world. The confusion of the world. They were placed in the temple of Nebuchadnezzar's God. And then they were only used to serve their idols. What a clear type of the condition of the backslider. Satan takes them out of the house of God into the world, backslidden. And then they serve the idols of the world. But now in verse 5, they're also, they were to be restored and to be taken back to the temple. This is a great sign of the hope that the backslider has to come back and may take joy and pleasure in the mercies of God. The vessels, it says in verse 5, they were each one restored to its proper place. Everyone that was restored. Many things were missing in the second temple. And some of the vessels may have been lost forever. Now, how many people backslide and never return? Backsliders must not take it for granted that they have a final security. Jesus said, I must abide in Christ and he and me, and I must endure to the end. Verses 6 through 14 now. Now, therefore, Tatanai, governor of the region beyond the river, that is beyond the river Euphrates, and Shethar and Bosni and your companions, the Persians who are beyond the river, keep yourselves far from there. Notice the, notice the decree that they're now telling God's enemies, you keep away from the work of God there. Let the work of this house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews build his house of God on its site. Moreover, notice the, 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 the king here. I issue a decree as to what you shall do for the elders of these Jews for the building of this house of God. Let the cost be paid at the king's expense from taxes on the region beyond the river. 
This is to be given immediately to these men so that they are not hindered. And whatever they need, young bulls, rams, lambs for the burnt offerings of the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine and oil, according to the request of the priests who are in Jerusalem, let it be given to them day by day without fail that they may offer sacrifices of sweet aroma to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. Also, I issue a decree that whoever alters this edict, let a timber be pulled from his house and erected and let him be hanged on it. And now when it says to be hanged on, he's not talking like a hanging from a rope. They would be killed and they would, they would, be, they would be stuck up on this post for all to see what would happen to those that would again uh, not obey the, the letter that has gone out here to not bother this work of God that's being done. But he says, let him be hanged on it and let his house be made a, a refuge heap because of this. And may the God who causes his name to dwell there destroy any king or people, those who put their hand to alter it or to destroy this house of God, which is in Jerusalem. I, Darius, issue a, a decree, let it be done diligently. Then Tadani, governor of the region beyond the river, Shethar, Bosni, and their companions diligently did according to what King Darius had sent. So the elders of the Jews built and they prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Edu. And they built and finished it according to the commandment of the God of Israel and according to the commandment of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. Now the temple was finished on the third day of the month of Adar, which was in the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. And then the children of Israel, the priests and the Levites, and the rest of the descendants of the captivity celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. So King Darius instructs the people now to not hinder the work of God. He tells them in 6 and 7, don't interfere with those who are doing the work of God. Now, Tadani, he was a governor and he had an important job. And he thought that he could stop the building of the temple in Jerusalem. But when the decree of Cyrus was found, the present king, which is King Darius, he realizes that this was a law of the Medes and the Persians and it couldn't be changed or modified. So King Darius makes a further decree. He says, now look. Not only are you to stop hindering the work, you're to help them get it done. You are to keep the taxes that you gather over there on that side of the river. And instead of sending them over here to me, to Persia, you are to give the money to these people for the rebuilding of their temple. God turns men's wrath to praise him. Again, we see that edict given in verses four through eight, that they were to give the money to the people building the temple. We should pray more and scheme and strive less when it comes to trying to get money. Pastor Chuck taught us always where God guides, God provides. If it is God's work, he knows what it needs and he knows how to provide for it. The people didn't set up booths and they didn't have yard sales or bake sales or or raffles. And sometimes, you know, churches make God look poor, like he's in poverty, that he doesn't have the means to do his own work. God said in Psalm 50, verses 10 through 11, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the mountains and the wild beasts of the field are mine. 
He says, hey, God, the animals that you bring to sacrifice to me, they belong to me way before you ever saw them. The world and everything in it belongs to him. There's nothing that we can give to God that he needs from us. Now, some of the pagan religions in that day taught that their gods and goddesses ate the animals that the people sacrificed. But this wasn't a part of the Hebrew religion. You see, what the Lord really wanted from his people, and he still does want the same thing today, was thanksgiving from their hearts, obedience to his word, prayer, and a desire to honor him in everything that we do. What a wonderful command this was to help God's people finish building the temple. And then he also orders that there be a severe penalty for anyone who would hinder the work. Hey, let him be killed and stuck on a pole for everybody to gawk at. So the temple is rebuilt under the inspiration of Haggai and Zechariah. And Ezra carefully pointed out that rebuilding the temple was commanded first by God and then by the kings. The kings were just instruments, powerful men. But we have a a much more powerful God. And remember, when God has a work to do, it might be interrupted, it might be obstructed, it might be interfered with, it might be delayed, but it will get done. It will get done. You cannot stop the word of God, the work of God. God does have a sense of humor when we see the wonderful work carried out or carried on by discovering a one little lost sentence in a heathen library. And then on top of that, paying for the work by the, by the, the ungodly. You see, all the powerful forces that oppose the work of God, they were, they were hindered by a sentence in a legal document. But again, God's will is supreme over all rulers, over all historical events, over all hostile forces. The hearts of all rulers are like putty in God's hands. Proverbs 19, 21 says, There are many plans in a man's heart. Nevertheless, the Lord's counsel, that will stand. Psalm 33, 11, The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Proverbs 21, 1, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord like the rivers of water. He turns it wherever he wishes. Even though men's hearts are in God's hand. And not only what they do, their goings on. As he said in Proverbs uh, 20, 24. But God can change men's minds as well by a powerful, unaware process going on in in their disposition. He can turn them from the things that they seemed most bent on doing and he can persuade them to do those things which they thought or which they seemed opposed to. Just like the farmer who uses canals and trenches to guide the water through his land as he pleases. Now those canals and and those those, um, furrows, those, those trenches that he digs, they don't change the nature of the water nor do they put any force on it any more than God's providence changes the natural born freedom of a man's will. 
but he directs the course of the man's will to do his own purpose, to serve his own purpose. Even king's hearts are moved in the same way. Though they may be powerful, and though they have their own things that they plan on doing, they're just the same as everybody else. <clears throat> the hearts of kings are much more uncontrollable because they, they have more power. They have great choices to make because they're kings. But the great and mighty God has them, not only his watchful eye, but in his hand to shape them and mold them as God pleases. God's the one in the first place who made them a king. We read in Psalm 75, 6 through 7, that exaltation or promotion in the King James comes neither from the east nor from the west nor from the south. But God is the judge. He puts down one and exalts another. Now, the word exaltation or promotion in, in this psalm, it has nothing to do with getting a better job. But the arrogant were lifting themselves up only to be cast down by God. But the humble wait on the Lord and he lifts them up. He's the one who exalts us. A Jew could search in any direction, east, west, or, or the desert. And he would never find anybody who could do what only God could do. Remember how the Lord delivered Joseph? He exalted Joseph. He made him second, second, over, uh, second highest ruler over all of Egypt. He delivered David. Made him king of Israel. He delivered Daniel and made him third ruler over the kingdom. You see, those that are totally under God's government, he puts things into their hearts. And he can deliver us in ways that we can't even begin to imagine. And if we trust in his power and his love, there is nothing, no opposition that can stop us. In Hosea 6, 2, it says, After two days he will revive us. The third day he will raise us up. On the third day, it says here that this temple was built, was to be built. On the third day, this temple, our body will be finished when we're taken up to heaven. I mean, what a great day that's going to be. And it's interesting that, that it was 2,000 years from the time of their destruction to the time of their re reviving. And in the 3,000th year, the 1,000-year reign, or in the millennium, the third day, he's going to raise us up and we're going to live in his sight. And you know what? We're getting close to that millennial reign to Christ. So here now the temple is rebuilt and it's dedicated. And the Passover is celebrated again. And the people are experiencing unbelievable joy. And that's always the result of working for God and seeing his work completed. Jesus said in John 17, For I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work that you have given me to do. So in closing, may we be able to say when our days are over, Father, I have finished the work that you gave me to do. Not what the world said I should do. Or what others suggested I should do. But I finished the work, Lord, that you gave me to do. The Passover was a yearly celebration remembering Israel's deliverance from Egypt. After a, a bunch of plagues couldn't convince the Pharaoh to let the people go, let the Israelites go free. God said that he would, he, he would send the destroying angel to kill the firstborn in every household. But the angel would pass over every home that had the blood of a specified lamb smeared on the sides of the doorframe. 
The Passover spoke of the death of Christ. Our Passover, who was offered for us. And when we gather around, or when they gathered around the Passover, they were gathering around the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, according to the word of God. Father, once again, we thank you for this chapter. We thank you for your word, Lord. Father, we thank you for being an almighty, all-powerful God who rules and overrules all men in all affairs. Father, your government is the only government that matters. And God, help us God, to do what you've called us to do, God. To do the work that you have given us to do here, God. And Lord, let us not be... Father, let us not be wanting to give up or to quit because of discouragement. Lord, or fatigue. Father, or or obstruction, interruption, interference, Lord, or delay. Help us to grow through those times of opposition, God. And help us to stand upon the fact that nobody, nothing, no ruler, no army, no power of, of this earth, of this world can stop your will and your work. It will get done. And that we pray tonight, Lord, that if there's anybody here that doesn't know Christ as their Lord and Savior, that your word is spoken to their heart and that they would recognize that the work that you did on the cross, the work that the Father gave you to do, And you completed it to the very end for the forgiveness of our sins. That they would desire to come to know you, Lord. To know that salvation. The worship team is going to lead us in a time of worship right now. And if you want to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, then as we worship, you get up out of your seat, you make your way down the aisles towards the steps up front, I'll meet you there. And when the song's over, we'll pray together a prayer of faith.